You remember in the book of Job that Satan solicits God for the freedom to attack Job's faith. And where does Satan start that attack? As he strategizes and works through how he will hurt Job in this way, where does he start? God, take away Job's wealth and he will curse you. His life consists in the abundance of the things that he has, not in his relationship with you. So take away his possessions, impoverish Job, and he will deny you. But stripped of everything that he possesses, even bereft of his children, Job does not curse God, but he blesses God. Now where does Satan start next? Where does he go next as he appeals to God for a shot at Job? Okay, Job is not in love with material wealth. But take away his health and he will deny you. Satan knows that if there is anything more precious than wealth in this material world, it is our health. Of all the crises we face in this waking world, disease and physical debilitation can be among the hardest to handle. Christians in the West seem to encounter as much temptation to respond like unbelievers to the life-threatening illnesses that we face as with any other temptation. We are programmed in our culture to put undue confidence in medicine. And we're not often prepared to face death by disease in a distinctly biblical manner. We do a lot to prepare ourselves to understand the physical challenges that we will face and how it can be cured and how to address it, but we don't do very well at thinking distinctly, Christianly, about this kind of crisis. Now, a Christian theology of death and dying is well beyond the parameters of this single message, to be sure. But I'd like us to turn to Isaiah 38 today, and as we return to the story of King Hezekiah, as we've been tracing it, this great king of Judah, God's Spirit brings us face to face with this topic that we so love to avoid. There's some of us who can't avoid it. There's others of us, the youth among us particularly, that really have no concept of this at all. But we do come to terms slowly in our life with the fact that life is short, that disease is a reality, and really every one of us in this church, and certainly beyond the confines of this assembly, know of this reality. Because we do not often consider it, We are easily programmed to deal with life-threatening illness and to conceive of death by disease in ways that are really not distinctly biblical. Isaiah 38 provides at least some edification to this end. It helps to steer us and to think through this as we encounter this very situation in the life of Hezekiah. Now remember, chapter 38 provides... Uh, is, is really following off of this earlier account in 36 and 37 of the Assyrian invasion. This vastly superior, ruthlessly violent army has come into Israel. 
and is at the gates of Jerusalem. There is no way to defeat them. But Hezekiah seeks the Lord. In strict contrast with Ahaz, his father, who sought to ally with ungodly powers to fight the enemies that came into into the realm, Hezekiah turns to God in prayer. He goes to God as the sovereign Lord of the universe. He pours out his heart to the Lord, and there's a dramatic victory that God orchestrates. 185,000 Assyrian troops die. We're not told exactly how, but whether it's disease or bubonic plague or in some way, there is a uh, death angel that marches through the camp in one night and Hezekiah's problem evaporates. God in His sovereign power over the nations, which is what Isaiah is seeking to demonstrate in this book, God sends the great Assyrian powers home. In contrast to Ahaz, Hezekiah trusts God. Now we cannot know for sure if chapter 38 follows 36 and 37 chronologically, but either way, chapter 36 and 37 depict Hezekiah in a crisis from without. Chapter 38 pictures him in a crisis within. Here, the problem is his body. In chapter 38, then the 39-year-old Hezekiah faces a message from God that turns his world upside down. Put yourself in his position. He's a man of great prominence. He's a man that has accomplished much for Israel. He's a man that has walked righteously before God. There is this great victory over Assyria and he has orchestrated and guided and steered and shepherded Israel out of idolatry and away from this Assyrian oppression. And at 39 years of age, at the height of his power and his skills, he receives this word. Chapter 38 of Isaiah, verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. So we need to see Hezekiah in the scene. He is indeed on the verge of death, and he will die. We might say, wow, Isaiah is kind of lacking in bedside manners here. It's a pretty abrupt way to put this. You're, you're gone, you're not going to recover, see you later. I would imagine that there's probably some more discussion that took place here. We just have the direct uh, essence of it, the summation of it. And set your house in order is not saying make sure that you've cleaned up the bedroom and washed the dishes and put on fresh underwear or something like that. Set your house in order is what? It's talk to your officials. Gather your family around. It's time for your last will and testament. Set your house in order. You will die. Verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord. We see his response here immediately is again prayer and dependence upon the Lord. Turning his face to the wall would have dismissed Isaiah without a word and would have put him now in a position of talking to God alone. 
Isaiah cannot help him now. Not in this crisis. And as in the crisis of the Assyrian invasion, he turns to the Lord. And he prayed to the Lord, verse 3, and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I don't want to die. And you know my track record here, Lord. I don't think he's saying by any means, listen, God, you owe me one. I've been a good boy. You can't do this to me. That's, that's not the point of it. Is I have walked in covenantal faithfulness with you as the king of Israel. And I desire that you would be faithful to your covenant to David and me as a king and the offspring of David that you would bless and heal me. Hezekiah had proven to be an extraordinarily godly and faithful king. This isn't just rhetoric. He had worked for God. He had done hard things for God in destroying the idolatry in the land and opening up again the temple of God and reinstituting the worship of God. And he argues with God here a little bit in prayer in a right and appropriate sense. Is this how this is going to end? At 39 years of age, at the height of my leadership of Israel, this is how this is going to end? He weeps bitterly. He has a nation to run. He has a family to lead. And he wants to keep going. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. What's going on here? Did God break His promise of verse 1? No, of course, God's declaration includes the unstated condition that Hezekiah may pray. Had he not prayed, Hezekiah would have died. But by throwing his dependence on God, he is spared. Now, we we understand this, and and we need to read Scripture from an understanding way, not try to point at it and say, well, God changed his mind here. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mom tells son to mow the lawn. And she determines in her mind, before she says, I want you to mow the lawn, if he says, is it all right, Mom, if I do my homework, I won't make him mow the lawn. Right? It's a condition that's unstated. And she says to him simply, I want you to mow the lawn today. An unstated condition is there in God's statement, you will die. In his mercy, God pulls Hezekiah back then from the threshold of death and grants him another 15 years of life. And we learn from 2 Kings that it was a very fast recovery. God makes another promise here, and it shows some sense of what is going on as Hezekiah speaks of his covenantal faithfulness to the Lord. Verse 6, God says, I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city. This might indicate that his sickness came before the Assyrian invasion, but it could just as well be that he is saying, now that the Assyrian king Sennacherib has gone home, whimpering, He's not going to assemble an army that's going to come back here. Remember, it was 20 years after Sennacherib left that he died. 
So for the next 20 years, it was at least theoretically possible for the Assyrian Empire to come back and destroy or to attack Jerusalem. God says, that won't happen. You will live 15 years and they will not show up. That's my promise to you. And this shall be, verse 7, a sign to you from the Lord. Now that's got to stand off the page for us. This will be a sign for you. That the Lord will do this thing that He has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. You remember Hezekiah's father Ahaz. God promised Ahaz that the alliance of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel would not defeat Judah and the southern kingdom. And he said to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. What did Ahaz say? In hypocrisy, he piously says, oh, I'll not bother God with that. And so God says, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. I don't want a sign, says Ahaz. What Ahaz wanted was, ironically, to ally with Assyria. This nation that's now seeking to crush Israel. He didn't want to rely on God. Did not want to depend on the Lord. He wanted to depend on human wisdom and power. Now, so it's got to jump off the page at us here. God gives a sign to Hezekiah who indeed asks for that sign. And the sign here is that the sun will go back on the dial of Ahaz. We have no idea what that means. We don't have this structure. We don't know if it was built as a timepiece or if it was just a, a building where the steps just served that way to tell the time of day. But uh, we don't know how the miracle took place. Uh, if it was indeed literally a miracle even, I, we're really not sure. It's doubtful to me that the earth stopped spinning on its axis. It is indicated in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 32 that it was a local phenomenon. And so whether it was some sort of refraction off of of another planet or just some local miracle that God did, we don't know how He did it. We don't know what exactly this means. But there was a very specific sign that you will live and Assyria will not attack. Now, Isaiah records a poem that Hezekiah recounts. And let me, let me prepare you for this. It, it, um, it, he discusses his ordeal with illness, expresses his mortality. There are numerous difficulties in this poem. We don't know what Hezekiah is saying sometimes, and commentators are arguing with each other and trying to figure it out. It's very difficult poetry. But the overall point is obvious. I'll not get deep into it. Uh, where there's differences of exactly what he means here. There's just some things that are just beyond us at this point in what it means in the Hebrew text. But the overall is fairly clear. Now, as we go through this, let's realize we have the opportunity to hear and listen from a soul that is in anguish. You know, you didn't probably sign up for that today, did you? To come in and hear, hear a soul in anguish that's on the verge of death. But there's great wisdom here. This isn't, you don't, you, we can't talk to anybody here, I don't think, that's right there right now, unless you're going to let us know something real soon. We, we don't talk to people on the verge of death. People in Hezekiah's situation don't typically come back. 
But here is a man now on the other side of that experience being right on the doorstep of death, and he's talking to us. And here's what he says as he handled that thing. And what, let me say first, what do, what do you expect from the poem? We might expect a poem of rejoicing and celebration and exuberant thanksgiving to God. But what we find, rather, are the remembrances of Hezekiah's travail of soul in the midst of his suffering. And so this is raw, it's gritty, it's earthy reflections as a dying man peers into the gaping jaws of death. He's not giddy, he does not gloat, he tells us what he is thinking in those dark moments, and we tap here into the mind and the soul of one who seeks to depend upon the Lord. He expresses the anguish of death beginning at verse 10, I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. The middle of my days, a difficult phrase, but something like in the prime of life. He's 39 years old. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol. That's the realm of the dead. The king gates of the ancient city gate. The entrance into the city. I'm standing right in the gateway of death. In the middle of my life, when everything seems to be working, when all is well, when I have strength, now I'm looking into the chasm of death. I said, verse 11, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Here his soul is anguished with the thought of being ripped away from this life and not celebrating God and not knowing people in fellowship. Verse 12, my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. You get the imagery, a tent is impermanent. The stakes can be pulled up and the tent is moved from place to place. The time for moving my tent has come. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. Women would weave a piece of cloth on a loom day after day and at a certain place that's as being rolled up, it's time. And so that piece is cut and that roll is either stored or put up for sale. Hezekiah mourns that his days are being cut off. It's the end of the roll. My life is at the end. From day to night you bring me to an end. Just like the, the, the day fades quickly as the night overtakes it, so the lights are going out for Hezekiah. It's honest, raw, anguished grief in the face of death. Verse 13, I calm myself until morning like a lion. He breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. The meaning is obscure, but apparently composing himself for another day of staving off death, but finding that this relentless lion just continues to stalk him and tear him apart. He's dying. He's in the jaws of death. Verse 14, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. This sentence of death. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Again, the meaning is a bit obscure here, but in verse 14, he's talking about somebody's sick, man, they only have a cold, right? And, and you groan and moan and chirp in a certain way. It's just, it's just this groaning 
that comes from one who's dying. But God has willed it, verse 15a. He has spoken. He himself has done this. Now he says, I walked slowly all my days because of the bitterness of my soul. We don't know exactly what that means, but apparently there's a, a humbling that took place through this experience of bitterness. And it's greatly affected him. And now Hezekiah, having expressed where he's at, he now appeals to God for deliverance. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. What's clear in this is the latter part of the verse, an expression of petition to God. Verse 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind, my, behind your back. Notice there the importance of this suffering. It was for my welfare that I experienced this great bitterness. Bringing me to the place of death was a place that was meant to encourage me, to establish me, to allow me to deepen and to grow. It served to build up my faith, and he rejoices then that in the midst of that, God did choose to deliver him. I had great bitterness, verse 17, but in love you have delivered me. From the pit of destruction you have cast all my sins behind your back. There was a, a healing physically, and there was a relationship spiritually with the Lord that allowed him to grow in the midst of this trial. Verse 18, for Sheol, that is the realm of death, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. This simply means that corpses cannot praise God. The statement does, however, also betray, doesn't it, a limited concept of the afterlife. On this side of Christ's victory over death in his resurrection, we see now that death is gain. Progressive revelation now provides us with the hope that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have that insight that Hezekiah does not have. God's love for Hezekiah delivered him out of the jaws of death, but how much more has Christ's resurrection power delivered us from death? Eternally so. So I think he's just saying here, corpses can't sing. But there is also something that's so lacking in Hezekiah's hope that we can have as we know of Christ's victory over the grave. His understanding limited at this stage in salvation history. But he does rejoice to be alive and to continue then to praise God. Verse 19, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. I'm now among them again. And here the thanksgiving and the rejoicing now begins to break loose. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. That is, I continue to walk in covenantal faithfulness, raising up my family to know your truth, to understand you. And as a man with a new lease on life, he gives heartfelt thanks to God. Here the poem begins to glow hot with love for the Lord and joy in his goodness as he continues verse 20 and closes the poem with this, the Lord will save me, or we could translate the Lord has saved me, 
And we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. The redeemed of the Lord sing. Free hearts sing. They sing God's praises with joy, with zeal, with wonder. They experience life that is life indeed, eternal life in God. As, as, As we come together as God's people to this place. We can raise up songs of the new life with joy and with gladness because of what Christ has done for us. Here, of course, Hezekiah on the early side of the cross before it has come, nonetheless, is playing music. He says, you've saved me individually and then corporately. We are singing my music. We see here the reflections of David, the songwriter, and the one given to hymnody and rejoicing in the presence of God. At the house of the Lord is where they worship, the temple where God's presence resided, where God came down to meet with his people. Somewhat distinct from what we do here today as we gather here to meet with God, to come into his presence in heaven together as as an assembly. But reflecting that same emphasis, I'm alive, Hezekiah says, and, and alive I can now praise God. Now, verses 21 and 22, a really interesting way to end out this chapter. And they've caused a lot of debate, but it says, Now Isaiah, verse 21, said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now, critics often dismiss these verses as a sloppy insertion. The author just forgot and just threw it in here. Oh, man, I forgot to say, yeah, Hezekiah asked for a sign. It's kind of an important point. Now that I think about it, missed that. Let me put it in here. And the medicinal application of this figs and a poultice kind of all smashed up and put on top of I forgot that part, too. So footnotes, put this in here, remember that these things happen. In 2 Kings 20, these things are right in the text. I love what J. Alec Matier says in comment. As everybody tells us these are footnotes, the guy missed it, he shouldn't have put it here, it's kind of dumb to have it here, it sort of gets in the way, but you know, we'll have to let them go because they didn't have computers and couldn't insert. Matier says this, It is never a satisfactory solution of a problem to ascribe literary idiocy to the long-dead guardians of the text. And he goes on to do what very few commentators do, but I think he's really on track. He says they're here for a reason. They're purposefully appended here to make a point. It's not that that Isaiah, as he lays this out, is an idiot and forgot this. They wrote very, very carefully. These two sayings, Machir says, are a deliberate pause in the flow of the narrative as if to say, before we go on to what happened next, stop and consider the heart of what has happened already. This is what the prophet said. This is what the king said. Then as the narrative moves into chapter 39, what Isaiah says and what Hezekiah says become key considerations. 
And chapter 39 also put together with chapter 38, the 38 sickness plays a heavy role in the 39 mess, which leads directly into chapters 40 through 66. So I think a very solid argument can be made that these two verses are here precisely for that reason, to transition to 39, which transitions, it transitions to the second half of the book, starting at chapter 40. A little bit more on that later. Well, the cake of figs, I said, as a poultice, it was kind of smashed up as a paste and used medicinally. And the sign, of course, that Hezekiah sought purposeful contrast to the sign that Ahaz did not seek in chapter 7. And they linked together, and we're moving somewhere with all of this, and we sang about it today. There really is a lot of connection between what we sang today about the birth of Christ in this text, in this book. He is the king that Hezekiah is pointing to. But let's stop. And let me trace out three lines of application here for us. Forgive me, I can't move. I'm stuck right here for uh, mic reasons, but I'd like to, I really want to move around. But anyway, I'm, I feel like I'm on a collar, but I understand dogs a little better, I guess. Um, there's three levels here that I think we should consider. We'll consider at some length. But the first is the ground-level matter of dealing with the crisis of illness. It's kind of down on the carpet where you live life and how do you deal with illness? But if we raise that up higher, like we go in a helicopter and we rise up a little higher, then I think we need to also trace out what's going on here with this sickness in the whole account of Isaiah. And then as we move even higher... What is the overarching message of this narrative to us today in the big sense of the term? So let, let's talk just for a moment, responding to illness. I think there's some truth that we find here and some help. Illness is an invasion into the world that God created, and it is an enemy that we should resist. That is a distinctly biblical relationship to illness. It's not what every religion would do or how they would speak of it. Illness is an invasion in what God created, and so we can fight it. We must not fight illness clinging to this life for all that it's worth. We must not fight it in self-dependence. But fighting for health is a noble undertaking. Back in 1993, tennis star Arthur Ashe prepared to die. He was dying of AIDS. And he said this, I... I, I wrote it down, remembered it, because it was an amazing statement for so many reasons, but he said, God's will alone matters, not my personal wants or needs. When I played tennis, I never prayed for victory. I will not pray now to be cured. How do you read that? The first thing I want to do is give Arthur Ashe a huge hug and say thank you for speaking into our self-centered, demanding, spoiled culture that nothing should ever go wrong in my life and that I should be absolutely unfrazzled by anything that I deal with. But having said that initially, 
Arthur Ashe is way offline. He's way offline here. I will never ask God for healing. Praying for health and healing is good. Praying in utter dependence upon God is an expression of faith in God. Dealing with sickness as if God is in fact the great physician and capable of healing anything is faith in action. It's coming to him and saying, you can beat this. And I'm asking you to. I lost a friend, pastor friend here recently, not too long ago, and his last post in an email was so moving. But it, it was just the tender, passionate, zealous plea to God to heal. He has children, a wife. He was in the middle of a successful ministry, and God took him. But that last message, do I look at it and say, you shouldn't be asking God to heal you? And rightly and properly, Richard said as well, but not my will, but yours be done. And it is. But we should fight it. We should fight it with prayer. We should fight it medicinally as well. This poultice sounds absolutely prehistoric almost to us to be fighting things this way. But you don't have to go very far back into Minnesota history. I can point you to a text that describes how they stripped bark off a tree and carved off the back of it and smashed it up and put it on things. And uh, antibiotics were gained out of, out of uh, bark and things like this. We don't have to go back all that far, and this is how things were treated. And so it is right for us to seek medicinal means to, to gain healing and health because death is an enemy. Never in dependence upon those things. Ultimately in dependence upon God, but using them is right. Dealing with sickness also, a second point under this main point, is dealing with sickness is a spiritual battle we must fight by faith in God. And here there's a word, I think, of rebuke to us in our culture. Hezekiah used medicinal help, but he didn't depend on it. He actively trusted in the Lord who alone has the power to heal ultimately. There is idolatry today that stalks Christians, and that is dependence on medicine and medical personnel, as if God isn't really there. When everything's been taken care of, then I float a prayer to God just to see if this might help a little bit. But where I really am putting my hope is in the doctors and in the medicine and the procedure. Thank God for the doctors, the medicine, and the procedures. Thank God for where we are today. Thank God half of us probably wouldn't be here if we weren't living in this day. But when you go through illness, recognize that this is a calling from God to trust Him. 
Thank God for the blessings of medicine. Use them, but put your ultimate trust in the Lord. And I think there's a challenge for us here that meshes now into the New Testament text, and that is to see serious illness as a matter to be addressed by the community of faith. We don't always think that way. Got the medical world taking care of me there. I've got God and his people in the church taking care of me spiritually as if there's somehow some distinct trail over here, the spiritual trail and the physical trail. The two are very much integrated. And we demonstrate our knowledge of that integration when we become sick, seriously ill. I'm not talking about a sniffle, perhaps, but when we become significantly ill, And we don't see the church and God's people as having anything to do with it. Remember what James said. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Spiritual shepherding care for one who is in physical trial. This is one who's calling the elders to him. I would assume this means a very serious illness where they must come to that person. But we see this then as a spiritual battle to be shared by the congregation, by the believing community, seeing this person going through a trial of faith. Now, there's a two-way street here. A church should then reach out to those who are in times of illness in this way. And the person who is sick needs to take initiative and welcome that relationship. It's a lot of things that times this really gets confused. Pastoral attention and a church's attention in times of serious illness is not hand-holding. It's saying, there is a sovereign God, and anything that happens in your life, he's big enough. And we are here as a community to faith, to watch your faith, to help your faith strengthen, and to bring this matter in prayer to God and ask that his will would be done. We always pray as we enter into hospitals with members of our church for God to heal. And we pray that ultimately his will would be done if he chooses not to heal. But we make it a matter of prayer. We make it a matter of spiritual pursuit. And I would just encourage you to think in those ways. This is how you deal with illness by faith. Through prayer, through dependence upon the Lord, through active community church relating with you through this trial. Some of the most heart-wrenching moments of my life have been in these types of situations, and some of the most beautiful. We go through it together as the people of God. Well, let me move up to that second realm, the messianic angle in the book of Isaiah. And I'll be brief here, but remember back in chapter 7, the promise, and in chapter 9, that a son of David will be born on whose shoulders the government of God's people will rest. He will sit on the throne of David. There will be no end of peace. This chapter alters... uh, This chapter 
alerts God's people that Hezekiah is not that king. As we think of the strategy of the book, what's going on here, Hezekiah, we see, is a mortal man. He is not the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now, some of us, we might kind of roll our eyes and go, who on earth would have thought he was Messiah in the first place? But we're on this side of the cross and on this side of Jesus. And all they knew was that a son of David would come and rule on David's throne and would be called the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and his rule would stretch over the, over the planet. So someone might say, particularly if this chapter came chronologically after 36 and 37, maybe Hezekiah is the guy. He's, re- he's opened the temple. He's restored the worship of God. He's defeated the Assyrian army. Maybe this is our Messiah. And that man is brought to the very verge of death. At age 39, out of his control, And I think then that this death scene merges into chapter 40 and what follows in this point in the book to show us who the ultimate servant is. And this is what will be worked out now in the second half of the book, chapter 40 through 66. It's not Hezekiah. There's a different Messiah. There's one who we begin to progressively see revealed. And we know on this side of the cross that this king, this Messiah will die. He will not succumb to disease. He will lay down his life. As Isaiah 53 puts it, he will be crushed for our sins. Upon him will be laid the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace with God. And so you see, Hezekiah's illness is a reminder of fallen humanity and weakness. It's not going to be in the perfectibility of a man that we find Messiah. In some great king who just gets better and better and then comes to the place of deity. Something else, something entirely different. This one who will lay down his life and be crushed is God's Messiah. So Hezekiah's illness is pointing to a greater king yet to come, but now in our day, if Hezekiah can sing for joy to the Lord in light of his recovery from illness... In light of his forgiveness of sin, how much more can we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, gather to celebrate and rejoice that we have been healed of sin? Not sinless yet, but we have been delivered from God's wrath by Christ's death in our place, and our destiny is, as we pass through death into life, to be forever delivered from sin. This is our confidence. This is our Messiah who has come. And this is why we gather and sing. Then if we step up just one more tier to the overarching, so much could be said and time limits that, but let me just say a few things. Hezekiah was about to die, but God intervened. But Hezekiah did die eventually, and we all do. We see the mortality of man mentioned once again here. This narrative points to the grander theme of the Messiah who removed the stinger from the scorpion of death, 1 Corinthians 15. Why does Hezekiah die eventually? Because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ takes the penalty of our sin and dies 
in our place. As Isaiah 53 makes so clear, he is crushed for our iniquities. Jesus gives his life in the place of sinners, and it doesn't end there, but rises from the dead. His victory is not getting up off a sickbed. His victory is coming out of the tomb. As one truly dead and now alive, he rises. And now we can say on this side of that resurrection with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. We can say that now that Jesus has defeated death. Hezekiah couldn't really say that. I mean, he could. He just didn't know he could. But he didn't have that concept. He didn't have that revelation yet. There was some sense in the Old Testament of resurrection, certainly. And Hezekiah would have known of that on some level. But never could he say with the confidence that we have to die is gain. What he says is death does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. But we can say, Philippians 1.23, that to depart is to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8, when our spirit is separated from our body, we will immediately be present with the Lord. In light of this fuller revelation, in light of the conquest of Christ's resurrection power, we have no fear of death. We have no fear of disease, no fear of malady ultimately. It's suffering. It's hard. It's difficult. But never is it hopeless. Never. Not now, because our King, our Messiah, has defeated death. We are forever free. And so we sing to the very end. No matter what God providentially brings into our life, no matter what illness, it is a spiritual battle. It's an opportunity to depend upon the Lord, to trust in Him, and it is an opportunity to celebrate in a way the world cannot, does not understand, and by God's grace is attractive to them. To see one who faces death and says, I stay here, I serve Christ, and I win. I die from this disease and I enter into the presence of the Lord and that is gain. I really win then. There's no losing. And it's not just fantasy and it's not just a way to feel good about what is really, really negative. The foundation of all of this joy and hope is that Jesus really did walk out of the grave. He defeated death as he said he would. He has defeated death. And in this we rejoice. For those that have not come to that place of full confidence that Christ has forgiven your sin, let's just face reality for a moment here. That's something we don't want to think about, but you're going to die. It might be in a car accident and you go very quickly, but it might be through a long, debilitating illness, but you're going to die. I'm going to die. We know this. And the Bible tells us very assuredly, indeed, the one who defeated death and rose into heaven said that we will face the judgment of God. But this is the good news and why we sing and why we gather 
Jesus Christ came to provide forgiveness of sin that we might be reconciled to God and stand in his presence free of condemnation. We can say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To those who come through faith to trust in his death and his resurrection, there's no condemnation. And that leaves you singing. To paraphrase one commentator, when you take a deep look into your soul as Hezekiah was forced to do, and when you find within nothing but emptiness and moral filth, and then you look to the Savior and see His eyes filled with love, see His arms open, His smile welcoming, His orientation reconciling, you will never ever cease to marvel at wonder so grand and so eternal. And you, will, and you will join the Hezekiahs of this world who sing to the end of life. Sing for joy to the Lord. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Father, we give you thanks for the reminder of the wonders of salvation in Christ. We thank you as well for the reminder of death and for the fact that we can stand here in, with absolute confidence and say that to die is gain. If there's anybody here clinging to idols who is saying, I don't, want to, I don't see death as gain. I see it as nothing but utter loss. I pray that you'd bring them to a knowledge of Christ as Savior today. And for those of us who will face disease, who are facing disease, for those indeed who see of Hezekiah and wish they had 15 years, we submit to your will. But Father, we do so with glad heart knowing that to die is gain. We plead that you'll do this unique work in us to give us confidence in the face of death and to help us to know that dying is an opportunity to trust you. And illness is an opportunity to build faith. And in the trial and the suffering and the difficulties of this life, we're just passing through. But our hope is in eternity. We thank you, God, for these promises. We put our faith, our trust, and our confidence in them here together as a church. And I pray that you will help Eden Baptist Church and your people throughout the world to fight illness properly. And teach us, God, to rejoice in the healing power of Christ crucified and risen until we meet him as he comes again or as we pass through the portal of death into life that will never end. Thank you, Father, for these promises. And in them we rest through our Savior. Amen.